This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. Hello, everyone. I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. I'm Kyle Rizdal. It is What Do You Want to Know Wednesday. We answer questions that you, our loyal and faithful listeners, want answers to. So if you've got one, question that is about the economy or business or technology, send it our way. We are at makemesmart at marketplace.org, or you can leave us a voicemail, 508-U-B-S-M-A-R-T. So first up, William on Twitter sent us a question about crypto, which is interesting enough because Kimberly and I were talking before we turned the microphones Just on. Just talking about about SBF and FTX and all that good stuff. Sam Bankman-Fried, FTX, crypto. Anyway, here you go. Why do people have large amount of money sitting in FTX, which is the cryptocurrency fund that just went under, thanks to Sam Bankman-Fried? I may not have a ton of crypto, William went on, but even I know you transfer the coins you buy on an exchange to a private wallet so you are not exposed to the risk of an exchange failing. Who's doing this one, you or me? Me. You know that, William, but a lot of the people who got into crypto through this kind of conduit, the FTX platform, didn't know that. They looked at all these celebrities who were like, are you in? And it's fine to, you know, be joining into this crypto world, even if you don't really know what's going on. And people didn't know. And if you looked at the website, it looked like a regular trading website. And a lot of people thought that they were protected. But, you know, that's that's one level. We asked Matt Levin, who's our sort of resident crypto expert here at Marketplace, to help us answer this question. And here's what he said. He says, many crypto investors aren't very technically sophisticated, and it takes at least some technical know-how to set up and manage a private wallet, which is what you were asking about In the Mm -hmm. question, William, for crypto novices or people like me who just have tried to block out as much of it as I possibly could, uh, you know, FTX and those kinds of exchanges made things really easy. You didn't have to make a private wallet. And even if you do have a private wallet, if you lose the, you know, air quote keys to this private wallet, which is basically a password, That money is gone forever. Or if someone steals your keys, as happened to a lot of users early on in crypto, Mm -hmm. money's gone forever. And there are all these sob stories about people who are digging through their old hard drives, trying to find the keys and passwords for Bitcoin that they mined in like 2011 when Bitcoin was worth a lot more than it is now or even with what it's worth now. And it's worth millions, but they can't get it because those are private wallets that they've lost the keys to. And so people used exchanges like FTX to get sort of their foot in the door. And it also gave investors the option to open some types of crypto savings accounts with really high yields. And that became really popular Mm -hmm. with investors looking to make a lot of money fast, especially in the extra low interest rate environment we had up until like the latter part of this year. And so... However, if you have crypto in one of these high-yield accounts, you really don't have the same security that you'd have with a private wallet or, say, the savings account at a bank that is FDI insured, FDIC insured. Anyway, 
FTX really presented itself as a safe, stable, regulation-friendly exchange for crypto newbies. And, you know, again, all of these advertisements and branding partnerships and everything Mm -hmm. made people feel like it was safe. And this actually came up. The reason Kai and I were just talking about this is because Andrew Ross Sorkin was just interviewing uh, SBF for the uh, New York Times Deal Book Conference. And he was asking him, like, people trusted you. People thought this was legit. What were you doing? And he's basically like, my bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, look, I laugh, but that's not far from what he said. It's not far from what he said. It's which is just it was oh my wild. God. Listen to yourself, will you? <sighs> anyway. Okay. All right. Yeah. Next up, we've got a call from an anonymous listener who suspects some big changes are in the works for her company. Hi, Kai right. and Kimberly. I am S from the greater Los Angeles area. Um, you'll realize why I didn't give you my full name in a second. But there are rumors going around that the company I work for, um, which is a pretty large uh, international company, is planning on going public. What does that mean for an average employee like me? And is Hmm. going public always a good thing? Thank you so much for making me smart. Okay, so... uh... Companies go public for a whole lot of reasons. The biggest one really is access to capital, right? Getting into the capital markets, the stock exchange, so that they can raise capital, expand their businesses, um, grow, and do all those things that you can do when you have money, right? Also, if you're a big enough company or a buzzy enough company, and those two are not necessarily the same thing, you can get a lot of publicity, your IPO can turn into a big thing, and thus you get more people wanting to buy either your product or your stock, and that can work out really well for you. But when companies go public, they subject themselves to uh, regulatory oversight. The Securities and Exchange Commission is the primary vessel. The exchanges themselves have requirements. So you have to really be careful if you're going public that you are ready for and are willing to do those things. Also, it's not just all good news, right? I mean, stocks go down too is the shortest answer and the easiest way to to put that caveat in there. So what does it mean for you? Look, if you are a salaried employee or an hourly wage employee, probably nothing much. But if you can get yourself paid or compensated in at least partly options for this company, right? If you can get in before it goes public, then, then that can work out really, really well couple of things. Number one, taxes apply and you can get really hosed by options and the tax bracket that you will then fall into. So be super, super careful. And also consult your own financial advisor on all of these things. It can work out really well for you if you can get some options and if you believe in your company, but it can also be a little bit tricky. So, so that's what it means for you, average worker at a company that might go public. There we go. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Uh, At one point, you know, when tech was actually hiring as opposed to laying people off, Mm -hmm. lots of people get lured when um, startups are recruiting and they can't necessarily pay the same salaries as bigger established companies. What they do is they offer people options, uh, stock options or partial ownership of those companies while it's still private with the promise that if you give your, you know, blood, sweat and tears and help us, you know, get big, then when we go public, you'll get a big payday. Um, But Mm -hmm. for regular folks who come in later, not so much. Mm -hmm. Absolutely true. 
Uh, okay, next, uh, a question from Tiffany about elections and and their detritus, the trash that comes after. <laughs> she, says, she says, now that uh, the election is over, what happens to all of the political signs that were in everybody's front yards? And I should tell you, my neighborhood, my town, is a very uh, lawn sign-friendly place, and there are a lot of them. She says, are they garbage? Are they recycled? Over to you. Oh, man, I wish that we could say that they were mostly recycled. Yeah. Well, you know what? They are in kind of a way, because if you win, you can maybe hold on to those signs for your reelection <laughs> campaign. And ideally, oh, you have funny. the same supporters that you had the first round. So, yes, in some cases, campaigns will go back and collect those signs or even people who lose, but they think they might want want to run again. I've definitely seen campaigns sending their volunteers out after the fact to collect signs, bring them mm. back and say, okay, I'm going to save them for next time. And, and then they use their, you know, leftover campaign funds to finance a storage unit to hold it all or whatever. But for the most part, after election season, most political yard signs sadly end up in landfills. And that's because they're usually made of like corrugated plastic or corrugated cardboard coated in this like plastic that with, mm-hmm. with a metal stand in there or a metal framework. Mm-hmm. And those mixed materials are super difficult to recycle and sometimes in depending on where you live impossible to recycle and you know as many of us know whether or not you can recycle certain things depends on your municipality and it's becoming harder and harder for a lot of municipalities to recycle much of anything because the market for recycles good recycled goods has been a mess in recent mm. years um so if you happen to have a political yard sign that you no longer want maybe you want to keep it up because you're happy that you know your person won or you're bitter that they lost and you want to make all your neighbors regret their life choices or whatever um you know you should at least try to remove the metal stand from the side from the sign in case your town maybe collects scrap metal and you know Organizations like Habitat for Humanity and other sustainability nonprofits encourage people to upcycle those signs. You know, you could make it a canvas for a lovely painting or materials for a high school engineering project. Or, you know, if you have pets, maybe, you know, cats love boxes. Maybe you make boxes out hmm. of them or something. Uh, in some cases, yeah, candidates will take those signs back and use them in future campaigns. But and and also that's because those those signs are not cheap. It costs like two or two fifty each, mm-hmm. uh, according to a DC political consulting firm. So it makes sense if you plan on running again and you print it off. You know, five thousand signs. That's a not small amount of money. You might want to get it back. So yeah. Yep. Good one. Uh, we don't have any experience with the yard signs because we're not allowed. Hmm. <laughs> oh, is that right? Yeah. No, I mean, we as journalists, I was talking about you. Oh, you oh yeah. I. Oh, hell no. <laughs> yeah, no. Yes. I was like, yeah. well, you're in a condo. I can get that. It'd be tough to put a lawn, lawn sign out there. Oh, people find a way. They put stuff oh, in their right? windows. Uh, people will go outside uh, and like strap stuff to the light poles or whatever or hang a, a flag oh, wow. out their window. And then the association gets all bent out of shape. Anywho. Uh, Next up, Hmm. Annie emailed with a question about charitable donations. 
Can you make me smart about when corporations such as CVS or Rite Aid ask you to round up or donate some small amount to a charity? Do they get to write this off on their taxes? Are there terms and conditions guaranteeing that my money actually goes Hmm. to what I'm being asked to donate to? Yeah, good question. So the basics. First of all, this is your donation, right? So they don't get to write it off their taxes. It is your donation. And if you, you know, I suppose wanted to keep some record of the 13 cents from rounding up from a buck 87 to two bucks, you could totally do that. Um, If they donate, if the corporation donates a portion of its profits, that is their donation and they get tax advantage because of that. Um, It does actually, and we call it, we check with the tax policy center. Um, and they say that 100%, unless these companies are breaking the law, 100% of your donation does go to the partner charity in question. So that's that. Um, this is called, by the way, Checkbook Charity, really important part of the nonprofit sector. Once again, uh, about $605 million from the 76 highest earning checkbook charity, checkout charity, rather, not checkbook, checkout charity. Um, $605 million from the 76 highest earning checkout charity campaigns in the U.S., right? Because they're all over the place. They're at my local Piggly Wiggly. They are all over the place. So they do it, these companies do, if they don't get the tax benefit, so that they can improve their brand reputation, right? So that you have a warm and fuzzy feeling that company X or company Y is facilitating your contribution to the charity in question, which is great. That's fine. No problem with that. Here's the catch. And this is the part that really gets me because when the checkout person or the checkout kiosk, right? Because a lot of times it's Mm -hmm. sort of a robo thing, um, says, would you like to round up today? Um, I I generally say no, because I like to have some pocket change, number one, and I spend mostly cash as opposed to a lot of people who spend credit cards. But number two is that I do my, my charitable contributions and a lot of people do at the end of the year and you sit down and you give it some thought instead of spur of the moment. And so it doesn't really jive with how people do their tax or their, their charitable contributions. Also, there, there's some judgment involved, right? You feel a little judged. I do sometimes, but you know, I get over that. I'm, I'm sitting here processing that you mostly use cash. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm a big cash guy. I'm a big cash guy. Why? It's too easy. Man, you just pull out a piece of plastic, you know, like, zip, it's funny money. Never mind. Whatever. But, you know, you hand over a $20 bill and you're like, oh, God, there goes 20 bucks. You know? You know, that's a good point. Um, Well, we take credit cards. And we would be very grateful. There's a segue. (laughs) Nicely done. We would be very grateful for your uh, checkout donation or your checkbook donation or whatever donation uh, you might be game to give us because it is that time of year and we would really appreciate it. And thank you so much to everybody who supported us on Giving Tuesday. We are going to be, excuse me, we are going to be fundraising until the end of the year. We're going to be coming out with some new cool offers in the next couple of weeks. And I'm going to have some new swag to show off that I got in the mail the other day, which is pretty cool. Um, but a big, big thank you to everybody for your generosity. It helps Kai have that $20 that he can be real bitter about when he has to hand over. <laughs> All right. Let's be clear. This money doesn't go to me and Kimberly. It goes to the company. No. They get it. it goes to the and also, company. just for the record, yes. it's your charitable contribution. It's not the company's. company doesn't get the tax advantage. So I hope you're listening yes. to that portion of the program. Anyway. Oh, my goodness. All right, that's it for us today on this What Do You Want to Know Wednesday. We are going to be back tomorrow to make you smart and hopefully a little bit smiley, too. If you want to send us a question or a comment or whatever, our email is makemesmartatmarketplace.org, or you can just leave us a voicemail. It's 508-UB-SMART. We will get it and we will read it or listen to it. 
and maybe get it on the pod. Don't know. Make Me Smart is produced by Marissa Cabrera and Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Juan Carlos Trotto engineered the program today. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Bridget Bodner is, she says, working on a new season of Million Bazillion. <laughs> Francesca Lee, I don't know. I'm just, you know, I'm just saying. She slacks me about Lee's it today. She truly director. is. Oh, did she? All right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, if she slacks it, then it must be true. It must be true. <laughs>